Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. This is our scripture reading today. Remember, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Not Sermon on the Mount, sorry. The Olivet Discourse. Uh, on the Mount of Olives. Um, spoken to the disciples as they're looking down upon, almost certainly looking down upon the temple, which Jesus had just said was going to be uh, so destroyed along with the city that not one stone would be left upon another. Uh, And the disciples ask when those things will be and what would be the sign of his coming and the end of the age. They thought those uh, events were all going to happen at the same time, but uh, they weren't. Uh, And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount distinguishes between the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, which we read of in verses uh, 4 through 26, and his second coming, which we read of in the subsequent portions of the Olivet Discourse, including the portion, the passage we're looking at now. So, this is God's word. Listen reverently uh, and carefully to it as I read Matthew 25, 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were foolish, and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, saying, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealer's and buy some for yourself. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. And later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered and said, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, we do rejoice that we have your inerrant word before us, uh, that it has all that we need for life and godliness, and that every portion of it is profitable uh, to our souls when properly understood and applied. We ask that you would uh, be with us now in this most important time. Would you please forbid me from teaching anything, saying anything that would be contrary to what your word means. 
And would you please cause me to powerfully present what your word means and please give grace to all of us who are hearing the word, including myself, that we might hear in such a way that you are honored and our souls are profited. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Children, have you ever um, bit into a delicious-looking apple, or maybe some other fruit, maybe a pear, but bit into a, a pear or an apple or some fruit that was really delicious-looking, but when you bit into it, you realized after you bit into it that it was rotten on the inside. Have you ever done that? It's not a pleasant experience. I've done that a few times in my life. I imagine most of the adults have as well. It'll happen to you sooner or later if you eat pears or, uh, or apples uh, with regularity. You'll, it'll happen um, if it hasn't already. And what happens in those situations is on the outside, of course, uh, the fruit looks good, right? Which is why you bite into it. You don't bite into what is obviously rotten fruit, right? So it looks good on the outside. Uh, but in the case of uh, the fruit that I just described, it looks good on the outside, it looks as if there's nothing wrong with it, but on the inside there is something wrong with it. It's rotten. And kids, just like fruit can be good-looking on the outside but rotten on the inside, this is also true of some people who go to church. In some churches, it's true of a lot of people in the church who claim to be Christians, who have been baptized as Christians, who regularly attend, who participate in the worship services, but they look like Christians on the outside, but they're spiritually rotten on the inside. This passage, and not just this one, by the way, but the uh, the uh, subsequent uh, portions of this uh, chapter as well that are coming in coming weeks, um, speak to churchgoers, speak to people that I will call uh, uh, people who are in the covenant, who are uh, externally, at least, a part of the covenant of grace, and externally have Jesus as their covenant Lord. People who are in the visible church, which is the church that you see, uh, the people that you see attending church and, and professing to belong to Jesus. There are a lot of people, kids, in the church today at large who are rotten on the inside, who don't really have Jesus as their Savior and their Lord. And this passage, and as I say, other passages that we're going to look at in coming weeks, speak particularly to them. But they speak to everybody in the church, but particularly to those individuals. A little background here. Again, uh, chapter 25 is a continuation of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which, which began, began back in chapter 24. It is addressed to the disciples as representative of Christians uh, down through the ages, because they, of course, uh, were uh, Christians with the exception of um, Judas. And um, in this particular chapter, chapter 25, Jesus adds three more parables... He's already used a parable, a couple of parables uh, at the end of chapter 24, but he adds three more parables 
to the parables he's already spoken, to warn those of us who are in covenant with him to be prepared for his second coming, for his bodily return to earth and glory with his holy angels in flaming fire. Those three parables, the first is the parable we are looking at this morning. It is the parable of the ten virgins. Um, the second that we'll look at, Lord willing, next time uh, we're in Matthew, is the parable of the talents. And then the final is the account of the separation of the goats and the sheep, which one could describe as a parable, but I'm going to describe it as an account. Um, and that's what's coming. And they're all addressed to professing Christians in particular. Each of them, each of these three that we're going to look at uh, in this chapter, further emphasize the warnings that are recorded in Matthew 24, verses 20, uh, 42 through 44. I'm gonna, I'll read that right now. In the previous chapter, starting in verse uh, 42, he said there, after uh, uh, two different parables, he said, Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would have not, would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you too, excuse me, you be ready too, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. And of course, verse 13 of our, of this uh, parable that we're looking at also says, be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. So each of these parables further emphasizes that warning. And each is addressed, again, to people who are part of the visible church. People who are, uh, who are in covenant, uh, at least externally, but also those internally, because uh, we need to hear those um, warnings as well. Uh, and that's the, uh, those whom he is addressing. But particularly those who profess to be followers of Christ but who wouldn't actually be ready if he were to return. In other words, who aren't savingly united to Christ. Okay, that leaves, brings us to the two, uh, the two points of the passage today. And they are as follows. First, we're going to look at the numerous similarities between the wise and the foolish virgins. And then we're conc- we'll conclude, secondly, by looking at the critical difference between the wise and the foolish virgins. So first, the numerous similarities, and then secondly, the critical difference between the wise and foolish virgins in this parable. First of all, the similarities. The first is this. Each of these young women, or bridesmaids, or virgins, whatever you, uh, however you want to call them, they can be called all three. Each of these young women had clearly been invited to the wedding feast, to the wedding banquet. They had received an invitation uh, to the uh, banquet and anticipated participating in that banquet. The women did, each of them, all ten of them, when the bridegroom arrived on the scene. So they all had received an invitation and uh, were intending to participate in the, in the banquet uh, that the invitation was for. The banquet, of course... Uh, represents uh, the unfathomable blessings <clears throat> that the believer will experience once he goes to be with his Savior in heaven. 
That's what the banquet is. The marriage feast of the Lamb is the idea that uh, uh, brings this passage uh, and this parable brings to mind. And the invitation that all ten women received represents the invitation of all those in the visible church, the outward community of believers, uh, professing believers, that it represents that invitation that all people in the church receive to experience God's forgiveness and love uh, and blessings, including the eternal ones, by putting their trust in the mediator whom he has appointed for that very purpose, uh, to forgive them and to um, and to allow God to show his love to those individuals. And that mediator, of course, is Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man. So all of these virgins had been invited to the banquet and anticipated being a part of the banquet. Very important to remember that. Another similarity between the wise and the foolish virgins. All of these young women had responded positively to the invitation that they had received to the wedding feast. They had all responded to it. Uh, that fact, the fact that they had all responded to it positively is evident from the fact that they were all waiting for the bridegroom's appearance. All of them were waiting, had gone out and were waiting. Technically, applying it to us now, all of us who are part of the visible church, which is the community in which God's gracious covenant is being worked out in time and space, all of us are waiting for Jesus' return. Uh, we are supposed to be, uh, certainly, and in some sense we all are. In Titus chapter 2, uh, Paul speaks of this. For the grace of God has appeared, starting in verse, uh, verse 11 here that I'm reading now uh, and following of Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Really, that should be all sorts of men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see there, those of us who are, uh, who are uh, saved uh, are those who will be looking for and who are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory uh of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, at his second coming, uh, bodily coming to earth. And so all of us uh, are to be looking for that uh, second coming. And by being part of the church, we all collectively are looking for the return of the one we profess to be our Lord and Savior, as these women were in the case of the bridegroom. Thirdly, another similarity between the uh, all ten women was that all of them displayed at least some degree of outward affection for the bridegroom. Their hearts in some way went out uh, to the bridegroom. This is, uh, this is evident in the fact that they physically went out to the bridegroom. In verse 1 there, then the kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins, ten, who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. This bespeaks their affection for the bridegroom, their joy at the bridegroom's wedding, um, and their affection for him. They, they, they made an effort, if you will, uh, to, be, uh, to receive the bridegroom by their behavior. And um, everyone who has become a member of some local expression of the visible church 
has, by that decision to become a member, by the, has made a decision to identify as a follower of Christ, right? Um, and by doing that, they have outwardly displayed at least some degree of affection for him and commitment to him. Otherwise, they would not have joined uh, the, the, the group of people that are called his followers and made the effort to do that, Right? So there's, uh, all of the women showed, including the foolish ones, uh, showed, made some effort to, um, and, and thereby showed some affection for, or affinity for the bridegroom. Fourthly, all of these women, all ten of them, confessed the bridegroom as Lord. Look at verse 11. And later, the other virgins, this, that is to say the foolish virgins, um, later the, uh, and so the, uh, included in this would be the, uh, the, the prudent uh, virgins as well, but verse 11 speaks of the, uh, the foolish ones. And later the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. This is after the door to the wedding hall had been closed. Now, the new international version, uh, renders the Greek word, uh, there, which is kurios, uh, as sir, not as lord. Um, NIV renders it as sir. And while kurios can mean sir on occasion in scripture, in certain contexts where it's quite clear uh, that sir is appropriate, while that is the, uh, the case, its occurrence in this verse almost certainly isn't one of those places where sir is the appropriate rendering of the Greek kurios. All of the best translations that I think are the the most trustworthy, uh, not just me, but other uh, uh, folks uh, whom whom I respect, all the best translations translate kurios as Lord in this verse. Uh, And on top of that, the word kurios occurs two other times in this very chapter, uh, in verses 37 and verses 40 and verse 44. And on both of those occasions, Lord is the only suitable translation of the Greek word kurios there. Okay? So, for those reasons, uh, kurios is the appropriate, uh, excuse me, Lord is the appropriate translation of the Greek kurios. So, the point is, all of the virgins, including the foolish ones, the unprepared ones, called the bridegroom Lord, in the same way that most of the so-called Christians, tares in the visible church today, do or would call Jesus Lord. Another way in which all ten women were alike is that all of them believed, at least in some sense, that the bridegroom was coming. They believed that the bridegroom was coming. This is evident from the fact that they all went out to meet him. All ten of them went out to meet him and were waiting for his arrival. They wouldn't have done that if they didn't believe he was coming, right? Most, if not all, people in the church today, the visible church today, probably believe that Jesus will return to earth in glory one day, including church members who are not truly converted, but yet belong to some local expression of Christ's church. And then finally, 
A final similarity is that all the virgins, all ten of them, became drowsy and fell asleep when the bridegroom delayed in his coming. Which meant that they were all startled when the bridegroom suddenly appeared, or when the announcement was made that he is, he's arrived. They were all startled because they were all asleep. At the time of Jesus' second coming, believers are going to be just as taken by surprise as unbelievers are. We're not going to know the day or the hour. It's just going to happen in all of a sudden with the concomitant signs that I mentioned a few weeks ago, uh, found in verses 29 uh, through 31 of chapter 24. But it's going to be all at once, and we're all going to be startled if we're around at that point in time. Okay, so enough of the similarities between these ten women. But let's now look at the critical difference in the remainder of our time, the critical difference between the wise and the foolish women, young women. While the five wise virgins were, as I just said, were just as startled by the bridegroom's arrival as the five foolish virgins were, they, the wise ones, were nonetheless prepared for his arrival, sudden though it was. They were prepared. These five prudent women had planned for the possible delay of the bridegroom. And they prepared by taking extra oil for their lamps in addition to the oil that was already in the lamp. They had extra oil with them so that they would have enough oil to keep their lanterns lit should the bridegroom tarry, which he did. And they needed that extra oil so that they would have light to go out and meet him when the announcement came. However, unlike these wise uh, women, young women, the five foolish virgins were not at all prepared when the bridegroom arrived. They, as you know, as we've read, they neglected to take along extra oil with them when they went out to meet the bridegroom and wait for the bridegroom. And by the time he finally did arrive, their lanterns had used up all the oil that was in them. And they had no light with which to go out to meet him when the announcement came. So what does it mean for a member of the visible church to be prepared for Jesus coming, the bridegroom obviously representing Christ. What does it mean to be prepared as a Christian, uh, as a professing Christian, I should say, as a member of the church, to be prepared for Jesus, uh, to meet Jesus? Well, obviously, it first and foremost has to mean that uh, such a member of the visible church is a genuine believer. It goes almost without saying that that is the case. To be prepared is to be someone who is truly trusting in Jesus Christ to save him from the eternal damnation that we all deserve on account of our sinful rebellion against God. And that 
person who is trusting in Jesus for that forgiveness and right standing before God is also someone who has embraced Jesus as the Lord and King of his or her life. This is what it means to be a genuine believer, to embrace him as Savior and Lord by faith and faith alone. Does this describe you? Does it? The way you know that it does describe you, the way you, uh, one of the most important ways you uh, know that it does describe you is if there is evidence that Jesus is the Lord, the master of your life, whom you serve. Which leads me to the second aspect of what it means to prepare to meet Jesus in addition to being a true believer. And that is the prepared person is also someone who will be faithfully, not perfectly, but faithfully serving Jesus. This is the evidence we're talking about. The evidence of true faith is that the one who is truly trusting in Jesus is truly and faithfully Serving Jesus. That is to say, this means, in other words, that that individual, he is striving to obey all the commands that Christ has given us in his written word. Not just those commands that are easy or convenient for us to obey. Does this describe you? Are you sincerely striving to obey all of the commands that God, that Christ rather, has given to you in his word. And this is his word. Even those commands that are difficult for you to obey. Or that part of you doesn't want to obey. Are you striving? Not talking about perfection here. But talking about striving. Do you pick and choose which commands you're going to obey? Found in the scriptures? Are there some that you are deliberately ignoring because you don't like what it says? How about the command to cease gossiping? The command not to be gluttonous? The command to put to death your pride? The command to not be anxious about anything. The command to not covet. Inordinately desire something that doesn't belong to you. The command to keep the Sabbath holy. The command to make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. The command to make God's worship your highest Priority. If you are ignoring any of these commands that I've just, representative commands that I've just uh, uh, shared with you, or if you're ignoring any that I haven't mentioned but are found in the scriptures, then you may well not be a true Christian. You certainly have no reason to think that you are. If you're ignoring deliberately something that God, 
Son has told you to do or not do, you're in danger. You're in grave danger. And you may not be forgiven and heaven-bound. And being prepared by faithfully serving Jesus also, undoubtedly, also includes within it and means actively trusting, actively trusting Jesus' spirit for the strength that you need to obey those commands. The writer of Hebrews tells us that without faith it is impossible to please him, him being God. Obedience True obedience is done in faith, involves trusting in God for the grace that you need to obey, not trusting in your flesh. The Mormons obey outwardly in the flesh. The Jehovah's Witnesses obey outwardly in the flesh. The good ones do. There's nothing God-honoring in what they do when they outwardly look like a Christian. In their behavior. God hates it. No, we need to be trusting God for the grace that we need to obey the commands, especially the ones that are inconvenient or that aren't easy. So, are you prepared for Jesus' coming in the ways that I've just mentioned? It's important to ask yourself that. Jesus is hammering home that point throughout the Olivet Discourse repeatedly, which is why you're going to hear it a couple more times before we're done. Get prepared. Flee to Christ if you have not done so in faith as your only hope. Don't trust in your baptism. Don't trust in your membership in this church. Don't trust in your Godly parents, don't trust in any of it other than Christ. And that means receiving him for who he is. He is Savior. He is Lord. And those who, ex- who experience uh, forgiveness from God embrace him as both by faith. Do that now if you desire him as your Savior and Lord. Just ask him to be that for you. There are some other truths, just briefly, that are taught in this parable. uh, uh, And they are these. Jesus' return will be, as we've already learned in previous things that Jesus has said, will be sudden, will be unexpected. And the concomitant signs, the signs that accompany his second coming, will not give time for uh, uh, going to buy some oil. Secondly, this passage also teaches that like the bridegroom, Jesus' bodily return to earth in glory would be delayed for a considerable period of time. 2,000 years have already passed, right? Uh, The early church Christians who believed that Jesus' coming was just around the corner should have spent a little bit more time pondering this parable. Delay is clearly taught in this parable, and there's some others as well where it's clearly taught. This one probably most uh, uh, most obviously of all, that Jesus would delay 
in his return to earth. Also, this parable teaches that like the wise virgins, the prudent uh, young women, Christ's followers, that is you and me, must be prepared and will be prepared for such a delay on the part of our Savior in his coming. We will not take the attitude of, I'll get around to being a faithful Christian later on. I'll get around to obeying those commandments when I get older and when uh, whatever. It's more convenient. Non-Christians speak that way. And finally, another truth that is taught in this parable is that like the foolish virgins who were shocked by the fact that they were shut out of the wedding banquet on the day of the bridegroom's return, many professing Christians will be utterly surprised and horrified to learn that they have been denied access to heaven by their covenant Lord because they were covenant breakers and they will end up going to hell instead. Don't be like the foolish women in this parable. Be prepared. Be ready. Cling to Christ and act like it. And you won't have anything to be concerned about when he comes. You'll be startled, yeah. But you don't have to be afraid. Only if you are in Christ which is to say you are truly prepared for his coming. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage, this teaching. Thank you for this reminder. You keep reminding uh, the disciples. uh, You kept reminding the disciples in the Olivet Discourse that you gave and that you um, inscripturated for us. That means this is very, very, very important that we uh, keep this notion front and center. Would you please help us uh, to, to persevere in faith and obedience? And would you please cause us to grow in our obedience to you as a true Christian will do over the course of his or her life? And if there's anyone here listening, Lord, to me that does not is not clinging to Jesus alone as his Savior and his Lord. Would you please show him or her that this is the case? Terrify this individual with your just the, the notion of your justice and then give the grace for that one to flee to Christ as his only hope. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Amen.